everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory on a beautiful clear night in Tucson, Arizona. We also welcome those of you who are watching this podcast on the World Wide Web, streaming at www.as.arizona.edu, or watching the podcast from iTunes U. Before we begin tonight, uh, with tonight's lecture, a few announcements. First of all, it's a beautiful night, so the telescope will be open for your viewing in the White Observatory Dome, the building next door, at the conclusion of tonight's lecture. If there are any students here for an assignment, I will validate your assignments down here at this table after the conclusion of the question and answer period. I also wanted to bring to your attention an event that's going to be happening over at Flandro Planetarium. This was an idea I cooked up with the Alumni Association. Uh, homecoming here at the University of Arizona is Saturday, October 28th. And the idea here is we're going to have, I'm going to give a special show at Flandro Planetarium at 11 o'clock on Saturday morning, October 28th. We're marketing it to the alumni who are coming back for homecoming. It's sort of like, hey, remember the astronomy class you took when you were in college? Do you have fond memories of it? Well, come see what it's like now using the current technology. You know, if you went to school here 50 years ago, you know, we're doing it differently than we did 50 years ago. So um, I thought that might be a cool thing to bring patrons into the planetarium. We're charging $3 admission because I want the planetarium to make some money, all right, or at least you know, break even. And, and so, but it's also open to the public. So what I'm just going to do is teach an introductory astronomy class for 50 minutes. I'm going to highlight some of the uh, uh, missions and some of the astronomy projects done here at the University of Arizona. I think the title of the class, Space is Wildcat Country. Um, but I'm also going to show you how we use the planetarium to teach introductory astronomy. Uh, parking won't be easy because it's homecoming, but you know, there's going to be a football game that afternoon and there's going to be a parade at noon. But, but if, if you're interested, it's, it's going to be a little bit different than the normal programs that they show over at Flandreau on a Saturday morning. All right. So, we are very pleased to have back with us Professor Michael Chris. Some of you may remember Professor Chris. He's given a couple lectures already. I think the last one you gave, was it about Galileo, I believe, right? The last one that you gave. And um, Professor Chris received his bachelor's degree in astronomy from the University of Arizona in 1957. He then received the very first graduate degree that was given at Stewart Observatory. He got his master's degree in astronomy in 1959. Keep in mind, my office across the way, that building was built in 1960. So when he went to school, it was just the one-room schoolhouse. It was just the white dome. That was it. That, that was it. Um, he then, for 30 years, was a on the faculty, he was a professor at the College of San Mateo in California, and he was the director of their planetarium. And when he retired, he moved back to Tucson. And we hire him as an adjunct instructor, and this semester he is teaching our History of Astronomy course. So, without further ado, I would like to introduce Professor Michael Chris. Oh, I should also mention, for those of you who don't remember the last time he was here, he gave a Stewart Public Evening Lecture back in 1957, yeah. I believe it was, right? Back when it was over in the white, right. So, I mean, he's probably our longest live speaker in this series. <laughs> so, without further ado, Professor Michael Chris is going to tell us about longitude, the watch that mapped the world. Hello. Can you hear me all right? Everyone? Um, I am Michael Chris, and after hearing all that, I should have a cane, you know, <laughs> totter in. Um, I am a bit of walking history. Um, I go back a long way with the Stewart Observatory, and I'm, I can't tell you how happy I am to be associated with the observatory again. Some of my students are here tonight, 
that always makes me happy. Um, welcome, especially to those students. Welcome to all of you. Tonight's lecture is about time, keeping time. Um, how many here tonight have a wristwatch on? Look at that. How many of my students here have a wristwatch on? It's a, it's a generation thing, as you said. <laughs> um, I have a watch. Um, all the watches you have, I don't care how cheap it may be, it's better than any of the watches that I'm going to be talking about tonight. You could go around the world with the watches you have. You could win the $20,000 prize that was given to solve the solution of how you go around the world, the solution of longitude. Let's begin that story. I want you to consider the plight of, I love this name, Sir Admiral Klaus Disley Shovel. <laughs> Isn't he grand? And uh, that is his name, and he was an admiral. He was in charge of a, um, of a fleet, uh, one of the many of His Majesty's fleets. And consider Sir Admiral Klaus Diddley Shovel's plight as we open this story. He was on his way home to England from fighting the French. They were always fighting the French in those days. Um, and successfully off, the, um, off of Gibraltar in the Mediterranean. And he was on his way home. And in his words, it was um, dirty weather. Tom, is there a... Um, you need a light? It, you don't have such a light, do you? No, I don't. But you know what I'll do? I will no. just bring the overall lighting up a bit. Okay. Yeah, now I can see. Can you see okay? You know, I like my slides to really show up good, though. Yeah, it looks good. Okay, Tom. That, that will do it. It was, uh, in his words, Dirty weather. Um, it was an damnable, infernal, persistent fog for the last week of his sailing. And he knew he was near England. He was using the best method available at that time. What time would that be? Um, well, this portrait was 1702. This battle was, I think, uh, well, let me see. The next slide might have it. <laughs> yeah, 1707. And there it is, dirty weather. Um, he was using the best method of navigation available at that time, and that method was dead reckoning, which is to say rate times time equals your distance. It's as simple as that. He thought he was in safe waters, as far as he knew. He was wrong. The islands of Scilly, just off the tip, the western tip of England, lay in his path. And he misjudged where they were. His ships were to plow into those islands and one by one sink. He lost 2,000 seamen and himself as well. Dead reckoning equals dead men. 
and you can't continue to do that and run an empire. Britannia cannot rule the waves if you didn't know where your ships were and if they were always in danger of hitting something and sinking. The problem was, how do you find your way at sea? Well, let's have a look at maps of the world at that time. This is a map that goes way, way back to the time of Claudius Ptolemy, who lived uh, about 100 years into the modern era, into the Christian era. He is very famous for his system of astronomy, but he also wrote about geography. And this is one of the maps of the many that he had. It, he didn't actually do the, um, the traveling to make these maps, but he lived in the city of Alexandria, and that was a famous port, and it had that wonderful library there. And he put together the stories of all the travelers who came to that city, and they all did. And he constructed this map here. Have a look at it. Can you see the Mediterranean? Can you see where Europe is? Ah, uh, can I see it? <laughs> yeah, here's the Mediterranean. Here's Spain, Gibraltar. North Africa, I, I guess, yeah. Uh, he lived here. Um, but I want you to notice these things here. You see these lines? These lines here? Well, of course, that's latitude and longitude. But the concept of latitude and longitude, of throwing this net of uh, coordinates over the globe of the Earth, goes back a long way. And we'll be talking about that tonight. Just to remind you, latitude starts with the equator, and if you, as you go north toward the North Pole, not that anyone had in his day, but as you go toward the North Pole, uh, you click off the degrees until you've gone a quarter of the Earth's circumference and you're at the North Pole. Latitude, 90 degrees. If you go in the other direction, to the South Pole, latitude, minus 90 degrees. That turns out to be the easiest of the things to find out when you're commanding ships. The east and west has to be with reference to some starting point. We, today we would say the Greenwich Meridian, but that hadn't been determined as yet. Um, but at any rate, that's called longitude. Now, there had been many journeys made by this time. Um, Columbus, obviously. Vasco da Gama. Magellan. So how did they find their way? <laughs> like when you enter a dark room and your hands are out carefully. Uh, they found their way by simply saying, let's go in that direction and see what we come into. Um, they didn't have longitude, but they did have latitude. They had a compass. The compass, uh, the Europeans knew about it, um, Chinese invention, and ever since the journey of um, Marco Polo, that was 1250 about, so long before Columbus. Uh, they had the compass. Then there's dead reckoning. Here you see a sailor engaged in carrying that out. What do you do? Well, you have a length of string all rolled up on a reel there, and you have a, a um, heavy weight that you can throw, but attached to the heavy weight is a bob which will float. And you throw that over the side, and as the ship sails, 
you watch that go past you. And you time it. Oh, no, you don't have a watch. How do you time it? A thousand and one, a thousand. Well, the, an egg timer is what they had. Um, why not use a pendulum clock or something? You're at sea. The boat's going like this. Are you kidding? So you have a, an egg timer, whatever they would call it. Uh, big ones to determine when watch, change the watch. That would be like a, an hourglass or better. And short ones, small ones. So you time that bob going by the ship, and that gives you your speed, because you know the length of the ship. That gives you your velocity. And then how much time goes by? Well, with the hourglasses, keep turning it over, keep track of it. You know how many hours go by. And rate times time is your distance, and you take your map, whatever map you might have, and you lay it out, and now you know where your ship is. Well, maybe. Not always. Why didn't they use the stars? Which is what they would end up using, as, as you will see. Here is um, the way the stars look surrounding the Earth. Uh, when you go out tonight, before you go up to the telescope, you don't need a telescope for this. Just go out and look all around. Stars surround you. This is what it looks like. If, in fact, this is what we really thought is the way it was. We don't anymore. Ah, and that's a story in itself, isn't it? But um, this is the way it looks. So the easiest thing would be, um, let's go back to that previous one. Notice that if you're at the North Pole and you look straight up, there would be a star there not showing in the diagram, but that would be the North Star. It's pretty, pretty much directly overhead. Not exactly, as, as you may know, but it's so close we can pretend it's directly overhead at the North Pole. If you were at the equator, then your overhead would be 90 degrees in the other direction, and the pole star would be on the horizon. So, if you have one of these things on the ship, it's called a cross staff, you can measure angles with it. You look at Polaris. I'm looking at Polaris over there. Tr trust me, that's Polaris. <laughs> and you take this thing that you see there, and you move the cross piece until one, the bottom part's on the horizon, and the top part is on Polaris. And then you read this ruler, and it's not inches or meters or anything. You read angles. And you can read how many degrees above the horizon Polaris is, and that would tell you your latitude. Remember, if you're at the North Pole, it would be 90 degrees. At the equator, it would be zero degrees, and in between, in between. So latitude wasn't too hard to solve, and of course, you don't have to use a cross staff. There are better things to use, not much better, but better. This is a quadrant. It's a fourth of a circle. If you put some sighting, um, loops on the top uh, and look through it at Polaris and there's a weight hanging down. You, somebody, while you're sighting Polaris, somebody can read the angle. So latitude turns out to be something that they did use the stars for. Why couldn't we use the stars for longitude? After all, at any given moment, the stars are all over the sky, and at some place at that moment, on the globe, if you were there, some star that you would name would be directly overhead. So all you have to do is to find out what stars are overhead at what point on the globe, sail your ship until that star is directly overhead, look down, you'll be where you want to go. Probably crashed into it. Yeah, but there's a problem with that. The Earth turns. <laughs> and as the Earth turns, whatever star is overhead at this moment, it won't be over there a minute from now. It's going to keep moving off. So you, ha you have to keep track of where they will be. By the way, 
all te uh, telescopes, and there is a telescope on the Earth in this diagram, all te te telescopes have some kind of a mounting in which the rotation axis, one of the axes of rotation, is parallel to the axis of the Earth. It's called the polar axis of the telescope. And as the Earth turns in one direction, the telescope turns and keeps track of it and stays on the star. We have a clock to do this, and when you're upstairs, you'll see. I don't know what the clock looks like. You'll see it. You'll look for it. It's there. You'll hear it. And if you don't, ask whoever is. Uh, what happened to the clock? Marina. Marina? Marina is up there? Ask Marina. Marina will know. But you see, what we really need is a clock in the sky. Wouldn't that be dandy? If there was a clock in the sky, which doesn't exist at the time that we're talking about, but if there were a clock in the sky, you can look at that clock, and let's say it read the time in um, New York City. It would be Greenwich, actually, but let's say New York City. And it says, let's say, 12 noon on the clock in the sky. And you know if you were in New York, the sun would be at the highest point it could be in New York. But you step outside in Tucson, and the sun hasn't reached that high point yet. It's got another uh, three hours, maybe, before it reaches the high point. So you would know that you are, what we would now say, three time zones over, but each time zone is 15 degrees, so three time zones you're 45 degrees to the west of New York. So if you knew the longitude of New York, let's say it's zero, and you're 45 degrees to the west of it. So that's how you would tell longitude, but you need a clock in the sky, or maybe a clock in your pocket, or on your wrist, that reads New York time. Or it doesn't have to be New York time, it could be London time, which it would be in this story. As long as it's a time that you knew your watch was set to that time, you could tell how far west or east you were if you had one of these things, or the things that you have. And as I said, all of you have something that's far more accurate than what they had available then. In fact, they had nothing available. <laughs> A clock in the sky. Enter Galileo. Galileo is known for many, many things. One of the things he's known for is the first person to use a telescope to look into the heavens. My God, any one of you, if you were the first to use a telescope to look in the heavens, you'd be famous too. Because you'd see things that no one had ever seen before. You couldn't help but be famous. But somebody got there first, of course, and his name is Galileo. One of the things he saw, and it's written up in this pamphlet here, small book, in Latin, Siderius Nuncius, the starry messenger, it probably is a translation of that. And on one of the pages in there, he talks about his observations of Jupiter. These are his drawings. So with a telescope, it doesn't take much. You can see Jupiter, and you can see that there are four tiny little pinpricks of light. Moons. It has many more moons now. Um, with what we know today from the space program, um, we know many more than the four moons that Galileo discovered. Those four moons are fairly easy to see. You don't need much of a telescope, a pair of really good binoculars, especially if you take the binoculars and lean them against the side of a house or a tree so you don't shake them. And then you'll be able to see the moons of Jupiter. And as Galileo found out, and here are his observations, they don't always appear in the same place. And that's because here's Jupiter, and we see them from a side view from where we are, and they're going around like this, so they appear to swing back and forth, back and forth. And if you make an almanac, which he did, of these motions, you can work out when they will appear in different places vis-a-vis -vis Jupiter. And anyone who would look at that 
could see, oh, it looks like this diagram here. Well, it must be such and such a time. Galileo figured out what time the moons would be in those positions. So here was the clock in the sky. When did Galileo do this? 1610. 1610. Well, Sir Admiral Klaus Diddley Shovel is living a century after that. Why, why isn't he using this method? And there is a problem. You need a telescope to see those moons. Now, Shovel had a telescope. But a telescope, when you are on the tossing deck of a ship, Jupiter will move back and forth, up and down. It's hard to make the observations. Galileo, in fact, invented something to help people make. <laughs> he wanted to sell this. It was money in this. He called it a uh, celatone. And as you can see, it looks like a diver's helmet with one with a telescope over one eye and nothing over the other eye. Why is that? Because if you, if you shut the other eye and just look through the telescope, you're not sure where Jupiter is. It's around, well, let me find it. But with the open eye, you could say, ah, I see it. I'll keep it kind of, yeah. Okay, now I see it in the telescope. Yeah. Okay. That's how you can do it. And he made these to sell them. The only trouble is it doesn't work. Why not? As Galileo came to admit that his own heartbeat was enough to bounce him, enough to make Jupiter move. And therefore, it wasn't practical. Too bad. He always needed money. He really did. Um, as famous as he was, he always needed money in his life. Um, like artists, you had to have a patron. You had to have, to have somebody who would give you, who would assure that you could live your life and do whatever it is that you wanted to do. Well, it was a method, and in France, in um, 1693, Galileo was dead a half century by that time. In 1693, they used the moons of Jupiter as a clock in the sky. And they redrew the map of France, as you see here. It didn't stick out as much into the Atlantic Ocean as they thought before. In fact, whenever you see old maps, they look like they've been stretched out, like a rubber band from left to right. And that's because longitude is hard to tell. So using Galileo's method, France lost a bit of its territory. Not good. <laughs> but if the French are going to do something like that, the English got to get busy. Always got to keep ahead of the French. So by the order of Charles II, the restored king, he said, let us build, well, it was suggested to him, and he agreed. He said, let us build an observatory. We'll put that observatory at Greenwich, England, which is near London, not eight miles away. Or so. How many have been to Greenwich? Wonderful. Um, I have pictures of Greenwich when I was there as a youth. Well, everything I did was as a youth. And, um, and we'll, we'll see that later. But that's where the observatory was placed. It will become the prime meridian, but we're not ready for that yet. And as you can see, inside, they don't have telescopes in there to begin with. They have these measuring quadrants. What are they going to measure? They're going to measure the lunar distance. I have to define what that is. When you look at the moon in the sky, well, tonight the moon will rise uh, around uh, um, 10 o'clock at night. But it was a full moon a few nights ago. And as you look at the moon, 
if you measure from the moon to some star, that angle we'll call the lunar distance. It isn't a real distance, it's the angular distance from the moon to some star. And because the moon is constantly in motion around the Earth, the lunar distance to that star will change. Now, if you had a book, an almanac, that told you at such and such a time, if you look up at the moon and that star, the lunar distance will be whatever it says in the almanac, then you could be any place on the Earth. And if you looked at the moon and you measured with a quadrant the angle to that star, and you looked in the almanac, which you'd have to have, and you said, hey, I know what time that happens. It's right here in the almanac. And then it doesn't matter where your ship is. You would know what time it is where you are. And that would be another clock in the sky. So the Greenwich Observatory was set up to make this almanac, this catalog of measuring, and that's what they're doing here. They're measuring the lunar distance or the lunar angles to different stars. And they're publishing it in this almanac. And every sea captain will be given this almanac and will tell them the lunar distances from the moon to some star. And why stop with the moon? We could do the same thing with planets. And that way you could tell the time, if you had the almanac, and then you'd have to know what time it is where you are. That's the easiest thing. Wait for the sun to rise. When it reaches the highest point, you say, it's noon here. And how many hours was it? If it's noon right now, with your hourglass turning over and so on, you say, oh, it was seven and a half hours since we took that measurement of, of lunar distance. And you know what time it was when you made the measurement. And you have the almanac, and you know the time in London or in Greenwich, which is the same thing. And you can solve the problem. So they had to make instruments that were better than these quadrants. And that became the sextant. So here you see early sextants. And one had to learn how to use these things. It wasn't easy. Remember, you're on a ship. You're moving all the time. But with the sextant, with proper training, you could take the angular measurements that you needed. Now, who would get this training? The officers would. The navigation officer. The captain would. And do you know it became a crime to tell anyone of a lower rank how to do this? Why? Well, if anyone could do it, they could navigate the ship. They could steal the ship. They could mutiny. And that happened. And you know about one famous mutiny. And we'll talk about that tonight. There were also other methods that came out. This one's called the method of the wounded dog. Yeah. The wounded dog method. It had to do with, uh, quote, a discovery. I'll put that in quotes. It was fake science, pseudoscience. But in France, this uh, doctor claimed that he had a powder, and a powder that could cure a wound, if you rub it on the wound. But you didn't actually have to have the person or the animal with the wound in front of you. You could rub it on another animal with the same wound. If it didn't have it, you'd give it that wound. And if you rubbed it on that animal, it would work on the first animal, no matter where that animal was. So here was the wounded dog method. <laughs> By the way, I should say, Charles II, the king, the monarch, heard about this from his mistress, who was French. He should have smoked a cigarette. <laughs> the wounded dog method, 1687. <laughs> I 
was just learning PowerPoint, and I couldn't resist. <laughs> okay, how did the method work? Well, you get two dogs, one who's going to go on a ship. Hello? On a ship? There he is. <laughs> and the ship's going to sail someplace, and the other wounded dog will be in London, say. And you rub the powder of sympathy on the dog in London, and the wounded dog on the ship is going to yelp. And it, by agreement, you were told, that you, you the captain on the ship, were told, we're going to rub the dog in London at noon every day. So when your dog yelps, you'll know it's noon in London. <laughs> now, it, it, they tried it. <laughs> yeah, you know, we believe in other crazy ideas, too. So this was a crazy idea of its day, and because people wanted to solve this problem, you know, it had a buyer. Um, the trouble is, the dog would heal eventually. You break its damn leg again. <laughs> Edmund Halley was alive at this time of Halley's Comet. So was Isaac Newton, friend of Halley's. And um, Halley was discovering magnetic deviation across the ocean from True North. Now, he knew where True North was because Polaris would show him that. And he had a compass, and as he sailed into the Atlantic Ocean, he could see the deviation from magnetic north to True North. So if he made a map, and you're looking at one of them here, then the captain on a ship can, if he, if he knew what the deviation was about where he was, he would know where True North is from Polaris, and he'd know where he was in longitude on the map. Except the map didn't exist. Even if it did exist, it's not that accurate. We don't know magnetic deviation that well to use it as a method for longitude. But it was a method. They were thinking. They were trying. Finally, Queen Anne was persuaded to offer a prize. That focuses people's attention. You say, there's money in it for you. So here is the Longitude Act of 1714, offering a bounty. Nope, I'll save that word for later. Uh, offering a prize of um, 20,000 pounds to the person who can come up with a method and by this time, they realized it would have to be a clock, a watch, which hadn't existed yet. Accurate enough so it could go to sea, keep time, and not lose more than three seconds a day. That would do it. And if you could make such a thing, you'd get 20,000 pounds. Isaac Newton and Edmund Halley were both on the commission to judge the... Um, the offerings that the different inventors would have. Isaac Newton, we have a very high opinion of him, and deservedly so, he said, no such watch exists, and I doubt, with heat and humidity and gravity, whether anyone can make anything like that. Well, he was wrong. But we're not there yet. There they are. Nice fellows. Um... Isaac Newton, of course, was working at that time on his theory of gravity. Halley visited him at that point, and they had a conversation. And with that, Halley was making observations of some comet. And Halley, from what Newton told him, could figure out the orbit of the comet. That was Halley's comet. They named it after him. Well, if you offer money, there's going to be a lot of people who will say, I want that prize and we'll solve it. Look at all these different proposals. I'm looking at the one on the right. I circled longitudes examine. Here's a machine of my own, which I am almost sure, almost, 
<laughs> um, I, ad I, ad I admire the um, humility that he shows. And he says, and I'll get the 20,000 pounds. Now I'm looking at the lower uh, left now. Time on tiptoe. I love that. <laughs> the one in the middle is by Jane Squire, so it wasn't just, you know, for men. Anyone who could solve this longitude problem. There were so many that they had a special room in Bedlam Insane Asylum in London where a lot of these people ended up. These people were called longitudinarians. <laughs> and they went nuts, or at least, you know, in the opinion of, of that day. Okay, a clock it would have to be. Here's a clock of about that time, 1657. Christopher Huygens, who, um, who was an astronomer. Uh, this is a clock he used. Notice it has a pendulum and it has some kind of gear work out of brass. What was wrong with it? Couldn't keep time that accurately. It needed to be accurate. And if you took this clock and put it on a moving vessel, it wouldn't keep time at all. So a refinement to this idea had to come up. Here's what some of them looked like. Look at the one on the left. Put it in a bell job jar and kind of uh, with a uh, vacuum pump. Uh, get as close to a vacuum as you can, hoping that the temperatures would stay fairly. Well, none of these work, but all of these are attempts to make something better and better with the accuracy that was required. Enter John Harrison. John Harrison is a clockmaker. He lives near London, and he's working on this problem. And his first model that he submits, which is referred to, there will be four models. This one is called H1, because it's the first type that he made. It's also called the grasshopper. It's about as big as this desk here. And it has these two things that stick up with a spring between them. And to see it in action, it goes like this. And we have someone here tonight who showed me he had been to the museum in um, Greenwich, is it? In Greenwich. Uh, and he took picture, a video of it. And I had never seen a video of this thing in motion. It, it was grand, wasn't it? <laughs> Just grand. You called it like a religious experience, I think. Right. <laughs> Um, uh, at any rate, this is what he submitted. So it's a big thing, and it weighs a lot. And they dragged it into a captain's quarters to give it a sea trial to see if it could keep the accuracy. Here's another view of H1. He has different um, pieces of metal of different expansion coefficients to stretch or pull on the clock to uh, negate the effect of a changing temperature. H2, it looks almost like H1, a little neater. Um, I notice it has a plate on it. To George II, George would be very pleased. That helps getting the prize, by the way. Well. The trial run of H1 was from London to Lisbon, a one-month voyage. And um, the ship, the captain of the ship, navigated by dead reckoning. But on board was John Harrison, who became seasick, of course, and H1. On the way back, a wind came up which blew the ship off course. The captain didn't know it, but Harrison did because of the accuracy of his clock. And he told the captain, and correction was made. 
And the ship arrived exactly where it was, well, not where it was supposed to arrive, but they knew exactly where it was going to come in. And it did. Here's H3. Notice the dimensions, about two feet high. It, they're getting a little neater, a little bit more compact. It's not something you can strap on your wrist yet. That'll come. <laughs> um, 1760, and there's the mechanism. I, I want you to look at the handiwork, the, the accuracy. It means 1760, that's the time of the revolution of the colonies in the United States, or what became the United States. Um, that's about the time, and look at the kind of things that they were capable of building. The drawing itself shows the kind of care the skills that they had. So here is John Harrison in 1753, a portrait of him. Uh, behind him is H3. It looks pretty big. As I said, you can't strap that to your wrist. He's holding a pocket watch. It is his own pocket watch. It is not accurate enough to navigate by. But they did have pocket watches at the time. And in the portrait, we see the pocket watch. Well, John Harrison will go on to make H4, which will be, well, a pretty big pocket, but a pocket watch. And the portrait was redone with H4. H4 is now on a table. But you can see it's about the size of a pocket watch. It'll be pretty heavy. And as I said, it would take a large pocket to put that in. But this would be something that you can go to sea with. Here are some drawings and photographs of H4. It's more than simply a mechanism. Look at the artistry. The man was in, well, most watchmakers are. They, they want something that looks beautiful as well as works. That was John Harrison. Well, there have to be some sea trials for this. Here, you had to wind that one, I guess. So the sea trials were um, to Jamaica. Now, there's a lot of stuff to read here, and I, I, you can't read it, but there's only one thing on it, and I put it down in the lower part, and I'll read that for you. On this trial from London or... or um, Portsmouth to um, Jamaica and back. A 81-day journey, and H4 lost on the entire journey 5.1 seconds. Now that should get him the prize. It didn't, though. That's another story, but we'll get to that. Um, on the same journey, they used the lunar distance method, which, after all, the observatory at Greenwich was set up to make those almanacs. So they had a lot invested in keeping those almanacs coming out. That was their bread and butter. That was a competition. So on that journey that I just talked about, the Astronomer Royal went along. And he could determine longitude to an accuracy of one degree. Now, one degree at the equator is about 60 miles, nautical miles. That sounds pretty good. Not good enough not to crash into an island, though, in the fog. How did Harrison do? One sixtieth of a degree. 60 times better with H4. What are we going to do with all those almanacs? We're going to keep printing them because the Astronomer Royal is going to insist upon it. He's going to insist that eventually he can make it so it's even better. And it's cheaper than buying those watches. Those watches were 400 pounds each. It's a lot of money in that day. It's still a lot of money. But in that day, it was a fortune. So there was a reason to keep on with the old method. But 
what one person can do, Harrison, another person could also do, and maybe cheaper. And that man was Larkin Kendall. And copying H4, he made this watch, which looks just like H4. It's called H1, L1 for, um, for Larkin. L1. And it sold for 100 pounds. Ah, now we're on something. The Admiralty would much rather, if it was accurate, it had to be proved accurate, and it did, much rather spend less money, because what's wrong with giving the captain of a ship two chronometers so one could check on the other? How about three? As a matter of fact, 20 was very common within, uh, within uh, a, a couple of de decades after that. So one would check on the other. So these things had to be cheap. So here's Larkham 1, H4. Same thing. Same thing. Larkham 2. Oh, now he's starting to get innovative. Separate hands on the dial for increased accuracy. And it was Larkham 1, 2, and 3 that Captain James Cook, the world-famous Captain Cook, who made all these journeys and mapped the Pacific, it was Larkham 1, 2, and 3 that Cook took with him on his journey across the Pacific. His first journey in 1769 was to go to Tahiti, which had only recently been discovered. Tahiti, just the name Tahiti. Ah, you know trouble is brewing in Tahiti. As, as a matter of fact, that's the name of an opera by Leonard Bernstein, and this is the 100th year of his birth, so get that in. <laughs> um, Venus crosses, as seen from the Earth, Venus will transit, we say, the face of the sun twice every century. Uh, the last one was in 2012, I think. Did anyone see it? It was on TV. I saw it. It didn't take much to see it. You couldn't look at the sun unless you had a very special telescope. But you could project the sun on a piece of paper, and people could look at that. And, or you can turn on the TV. That's what we always do these days. Oh, it's on TV. How, how many saw the eclipse of, uh, this year? Wonderful. You didn't go, Tom? I stayed here. I stayed here, too. I, first day of classes. Well, not my class. My class was the second day of classes. None of my students went to see the eclipse, either. Um, I thought I'd get stuck in a traffic jam. I really did. But it turned out it was, it was all right. It, it turned out to be really a beautiful thing. And I've seen four eclipses in my life, so I think I've had my share. Um, at any rate, here's a transit of Venus. We could say it's an eclipse of the sun by Venus, except Venus is so small compared to the sun that it doesn't hide the sun completely. But that's what it's doing. It's moving across the face of the sun. And the idea of 1769 was to see this because different observers around the world would see Venus crossing different places on the sun and timing different amounts of time to get across the face of the sun. And from that, we could determine how far the sun was from the Earth with great accuracy. And that happened. That's why Cook went to Tahiti. It wasn't for the other reasons to go to Tahiti. That wasn't really known at that time. It would be soon, though. Uh, here is a drawing of the sun, and you see the dot of Venus over on the near the right limb of the sun. And that's what it would look like. In Papeete, which is the capital of Tahiti, the main town on Tahiti, I was in Papeete uh, last year. And it's big. I said, oh my, when the ship pulled in, I said, they've ruined the place. It is not the way you want to think of Tahiti. 
Well, you get out of Pepe A.T., and, and it is the way you want to think of Tahiti, but Pepe A.T. is huge. Um, I've seen it before, and it, it really has grown immensely. And as an old man, it wasn't to my liking. But nobody listens to old men. So I keep it to myself. But outside of Pepe Ete, in a park, very, very nice park, where um, Tahitians, my families would go on a Sunday, and I, there is this monument that was made um, to commemorate Captain Cook's um, journey to Tahiti in, and sighting of Venus. And when I saw it last year, I go there every time to pay my respects to, I'm there to pay my respects to Captain Cook. It had a fence around it. So, you know, we've reached the age where we've got to put fence around things that tourists might want a chunk of or something like that. Three main voyages that Tahiti took, uh, Tahiti took, Cook took, the first one was to Tahiti, um, made possible by these watches that solved the problem of longitude. On the third one, the one in blue, near Alaska, is number three there, uh, Cook died on that voyage. He was clubbed to death in Hawaii. He overstayed his welcome. He really did. The first time he landed there, they fed him beautifully, treated him like a god. They knew he wasn't a god, but they treated him that way. But he came back for more. And they said, God, here he comes again. What are we going to do to him? So they stole one of his longboats. And Cook wouldn't have this. He says, by golly, I'm going to get some sailors. We're going to go ashore. We're going to get that thing back. And he was met by some Hawaiian warriors. A battle ensued. And Cook was clubbed. And here's, I said, I'm not going to use the word bounty. How am I doing on time? I'm almost there. Um, uh, on the third voyage, one of the captains of one of the ships, there were three, three ships, uh, was a William Bly, who then came later on to command his own ship to go to Tahiti to get, of all things, breadfruit. Never mind what breadfruit is, you wouldn't eat it. You know what poi is? Do you like poi? That's it. That's like breadfruit. Um, why did he want the breadfruit? Because they had slaves in the New World in the Caribbean, and they wanted to feed the slaves cheaply. This was a way to do it. At any rate, uh, the sailors revolted. Um, Fletcher Christian, remember that and all that? So here's a picture showing the um, moment of the revolt. A 1934 movie. Charles Lawton. How do we get the sound up? I'm going to go back. How do I go back? Yeah, it's the only audio I have. I think this is down. Yeah. Casting me adrift, 3,500 miles from a port of call, descending me to my doom, eh? Well, you're wrong, Christian! I'll take this boat of Walk ship out to England if I must! I'll live to see you, all of you, hanging from the highest yard arm in the British fleet! So... I think 23 of the other sailors decided to go with Bly in that boat. It had a sail, but I, it, I mean, they weren't expected. Uh, the mutineers didn't expect that they would ever reach landfall. Well, they did. They, uh, Bly was an excellent navigator, and uh, they journeyed for a thousand miles and eventually got back to London on a Dutch ship he told the Admiralty, the Admiralty sent out boats, 
to round up the mutineers. Some were dead by that time. Some had led to Pitcairn Island, where their descendants still are. And some were taken back and tried and hung. It's serious stuff. But here's Charles Lawton, and he's just great in this part. They've remade this movie four times. There was one before this one, and then twice after that, with Marlon Brando, and uh, the last one had uh, Mel, Gibson. Mel Gibson. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. And that was good, too. But I like old movies, so I like this, this one. Well, you know, here is Bly threatening, I'll see you hang by the highest yard on. He shouldn't have been able to make good on that, but he did make good on that, and the reason is that at the last minute, they gave him one of the watches. Or he couldn't have done it. The, the other watch went with the mutineers to Pitcairn Island. And um, it was sold to an American whaler um, about 60 years later to an American whaler who stopped by. We don't know what happened to the watch after that. Let's go back to the Royal Observatory. Here it is. And through the years, they started to make additions to it. Notice on the right side there's a clock giving railroad time. The railroads are in England now, so railroad time has to be telegraphed all over the, um, the realm. Notice that on the tower there is a ball at the bottom of a, uh, of a like a pole, flagpole, and that's the time ball. And they would, the astronomer would raise that to the top. You can see that the observatory, if you were a captain on a ship, well, anyone could see it. But if you were a captain sailing down the Thames on your way out, you'd see that ball drop at 1 p.m. and then you'd set your chronometer, 1 p.m. We still have that custom. <laughs> That's where it comes from. <laughs> if you go to Greenwich, England today, well, I did, and it wasn't today. It was, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago. But I don't think it looks any different. Here is the telescope sitting on the prime meridian, because this is where the telescope that made the measurements. There is on the ground, you see it, a line. It's in metal. It's the prime meridian. That prime meridian goes all the way around, well, not literally, but in our imagination, goes all the way around the Earth. And if you follow that prime meridian all the way to Greenwich, that's me. <laughs> yes, I was young once. Um, and I'm standing, everyone who goes there has to stand with one foot in the Eastern Hemisphere and one foot in the Western Hemisphere. I suppose they sell tickets to it now. And I suppose, they, does anyone know what's it like now if you go there? <laughs> A lot of people, you want this, you've got to have this picture made, right? Well, that's my picture. I was a happy guy. Straddling the world. Clocks improved. Uh, we have ship chronometers on gimbals. So what became those watches of Harrison and, and Larkham, um, uh, they became this. But of course, <laughs> today, if you're within sight of a tower, not the ocean, uh, I mean a cell phone tower, um, you couldn't do that on the, on the, yes you can, because there are satellites too. So if you want to know what time it is really accurately, you're not going to do any of this stuff. In fact, you go to Walgreens and buy a Timex, and that will keep accurate enough time because it has a quartz movement in it, which has to do with vibrations of atoms, of all things. 
as long as your battery doesn't run out. <laughs> Around 1920, the four timepieces, three timepieces here, of um, Harrison were decaying, unused, forgotten in a closet. And so they decided to restore them. You see that going on here. And if you go to the museum, there they is. That's what it looks like. Okay. Uh, and there they are. Harrison, well, his time ran out eventually. Oh, that prize! The government, the Admiralty wouldn't give him the stinkers. They wouldn't give him that money. They hemmed and hawed. They didn't want to part with the money. And he had to wait, I think, 10 years. And he had to enlist the aid of uh, some pretty famous guys in his time, one of whom had the ear of the king. And the king listened to it, and he says, this fellow has been dealt with very badly. Pay him off. And finally, he got the money. He didn't live much longer, though. So, next time you're out on the ocean and you're wondering where to go, you know who to thank. John Harrison and the watch that mapped the world. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Michael. I know it's running a little late, but I can take one or two questions if, if there are any. Okay, if not then, I'll remind you that I will stamp student assignments down here. I'll, I, the telescope is open, and our next lecture in two weeks, two weeks from tonight, the 23rd of October, Dr. Uh, Stacy Alberts is gonna tell us about the new James Webb Space Telescope, and how they put it together, and what it's gonna do when it launches next year. So, thank you much again, have a pleasant evening. Thank you for coming. <laughs>